You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. I wanted to give you guys some exciting news. We just launched a merch store that has some Recovery Survey apparel as well as just some general recovery shirts, hoodies, hats. Be sure to check that out. You can go to merch.recoverysurvey.com or click on the link in the show notes. I was suffering from survivor's guilt because I felt so guilty about these young guys that I'd met that I really kind of got got along with and they both died. And I was thinking, man, I'm worthless. You know, like I should have been the one who died. My guest today is named Dean Freeberg. He is retired from the U.S. Navy and he's here today to talk to us about overcoming addictions, depression, suicidal thoughts, PTSD, survivor's guilt, and bulimia. Welcome to the show, Dean. My name is Dean F., and I am an alcoholic. Welcome to the show, Dean. Would you mind giving us a little bit of your backstory and maybe telling us about the journey and how you got to where you are today? Like I said, my name is Dean, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I'm originally from Wisconsin. I was uh, born in Illinois, raised in Wisconsin until I was 22, and then I joined the Navy and spent 25 years in the Navy, uh, serving all over the world on ships and at shore. My family and I had lived in Japan, Spain, and Italy during that time uh, for a total of about 14 years. Um, and during that time, I was either assigned to a ship or to a shore duty command. And I had a pretty amazing career um, in the Navy, but my you know background starts in Wisconsin. Wisconsin is a, a very much so a drinking state. Uh, at one time, my hometown was in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most bars per capita. We had like, I don't know, 80 or 90 bars for 19,000 people. So lots of drinking going on there. And, uh, you know, I, like a lot of kids, I started drinking at weddings and stuff, you know, picking up drinks off tables with my brother when my parents would take us to these weddings uh, at the age of like 13 or 14. And, you know, just... When I became, you know, when I got 16 and driver's license, you know, would go out partying, you know, we do road trips and stuff and, you know, just drink. And I mean, drinking was part of everything we did. That kind of carried on into my military career when I was single in the military, which was the first few years of my military career. You know, we'd pull into port and it was, boom, let's go get drunk. And when we'd pull into, you know, foreign ports, it was, let's go find ladies and let's get drunk. I did that, you know, just like any sailor. Uh, but it was after I got married and uh, my wife and I had two young daughters and we moved from San Diego, California to Japan. And I noticed that's when my drinking really started kind of changing a little bit. So I'd come home from the ship at the end of the day. And my wife was always fair with me. She always said, you know, sweetie, I don't mind if you drink, you know, two, three beers, right? You know, that's fine. You can have two, three beers. Just, you know, don't overdo it. But, you know, to an alcoholic, that just for me, it meant I had a reason to have the smell of alcohol on my breath at all times. That's what it meant to me. And so I would start, you know, I started out by drinking, you know, Bud Ice or something like that, because I already was stronger than just regular Budweiser. And so every day after work, I'd have like, I started out with like two or three, and then I'd go to like six. And over that 18 month or two, two year period that we lived there, I was drinking like 18 or 24 a night, but she would only see me drink a couple. And so I was hiding it. 
Um, and it started really early, which is really weird that I would start hiding it that early. But when I look back on my life and I see, you could see the progression of my alcoholism, how it just took over my life. And so when I was getting to the point where I'm like, I can't drink a case of beer between five and 10 o'clock at night. It's like just too hard to do. It's too filling. Um, we happened to transfer and get orders to Spain. And when we got to Spain, I had this nice little garage with this nice little work shed out next to my house. And so I was able to, you know, like keep extra liquor there. And I was still kind of drinking beer most of the time, you know, after work and stuff, and you know, all days on the weekends. But then you know, we started mixing in sherries and wines because that's like a really prevalent area for, for wine and sherry in southern Spain. And so it's like you immediately go from like, Hey, I need 12, you know, beers to even start to catch a buzz to, man, if I take two huge chugs off this sherry, because it's like, you know, quadruple the proof. So it just, you know, I just started advancing to different levels. And when we stayed in Spain, I pretty much so kept it in check. Like I would, I would drink at night, you know, and I would drink on the weekends, but I would never, you know, oversleep or never have problems because I was a chief petty officer by that time at E7 in the Navy. I never allowed it to really take control of me. And then when we moved to Italy, that's where things like that's where my drinking progressed like to a whole nother level. I went from so I was I was drinking, you know, beer again. I went back to beer and I couldn't drink enough beer. So then I started drinking wine because you can get the most amazing wine in Italy where we live for two dollars. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was awesome wine. And so I started drinking two, three bottles a night. Well, I you know I had to hide these bottles because my wife could only see me drink a couple of glasses, eight, only a couple, but try to hide four, five, six, seven, eight bottles the next day, right? They're clanking and, you know, I mean, it was just a nightmare me trying to hide these bottles so I could stay drunk at night. Again, this is not during the day or anything yet. It's only just after work hours and on the weekend, you know, every day all day on the weekend. And uh, I got to the point where I was drinking six to eight bottles of wine a night. And I was like, I, I can't keep this up. And then I was like, went to, I was in the liquor store and I was like, vodka. Wow, vodka is awesome. I, I only need this little bottle. You know, one, one pint equaled like six bottles of wine and I could hide it and it didn't smell that much. And, and so then I progressed to, to vodka from there. Um, and that was in about 2007. And then I ended up going to Iraq and uh, I spent about eight months in Iraq and had some pretty interesting experiences there. I was a Navy guy in sand, which, you know, that's not normal for us unless you're a SEAL. And I was not a SEAL. I was a ship guy. And so I lost two of my friends in Iraq. By one, one was killed by an IED and the other guy was killed by a random shot because these insurgents would just shoot at our, our camp areas they would just fire a thousand shots into the air, just hoping they would kill one of us. And one of them killed my friend when he and I were getting ready to go to the the DFAC, the um, the dining facility, uh, for dinner. And it just hit him in the chest, and he just died right there next to me. It was just like that just devastated me. I was like, you know, realizing how short life was, and the normal person would say, "Hey, maybe I need to rethink some things in my life." The alcoholic in me said, "Hey, I need more alcohol." And there's no alcohol here on this base. And if you do get it, a bottle of liquor costs a hundred dollars because it's black market. And so I told myself, Hey, I'll have my friend back in Virginia. I said, Hey, I need you to mail me as many seven, you know, 750 milliliter bottles of um, Jim Beam as you can. Those little plastic, the ones it's called the traveler. Mm -hmm. He's like, no problem. So I thought he was going to mail me like five. 
I get this box of 45 bottles, three-quarter liter bottles of Jim Beam while I'm in Iraq. And every night I was drinking it, and it was just insane. So I'd, I'd, I'd drink at night. While I was in my hooch, and in the morning I'd go do whatever I had to do. We were, you know, taking convoys off the base to go to the Central Criminal Court of Iraq. Uh, we were prosecuting insurgents, is what we were doing. And so it just, you know, alcohol became more and more. And then when I came back from Iraq, I I realized I had PTSD and I didn't even know it. And I was suffering from survivor's guilt because I felt so guilty about these young guys that I'd met that I really kind of got got along with. And they both died. And I was thinking, man, I'm worthless. You know, like I should have been the one who died. Mm -hmm. And, you know, instead they died. And I didn't even know what survivor's guilt was or never even heard of it. But then anyway, so I came back from Iraq and, you know, then I was just drinking vodka all the time back in Italy and, you know, passing out every night and getting up in the morning. And then we left Italy. We stayed in Italy almost six years and we got the... We came back to the States. We came to uh, Virginia and I was getting ready to retire. I had like... Uh, three or four years left before I was going to retire and I was going to just stay in Norfolk and do that. When I first came back, like the first 50 days I was back in the States, I didn't have to be at, at the job at, at duty. I had leave time and travel time and proceed time and all this time off. And that's when my drinking, I started drinking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, I started consuming a minimum of a liter of vodka a day um, where when I finally got sober and stopped drinking in 2012, I was up to a handle a day, 1.75 liters of vodka. And even at the end, I switched it to 100 proof because the 80 proof wasn't enough. And my life was just so out of control. And I just had wrecked everything in my life at that point with my family. When I went back to the Navy after that first 40 or 50 days and I went to work, I wasn't drinking during the daytime. I would drink the minute I got off work, you know, until I passed out that night. And then the next morning I'd get up. And then when I retired... Um, that's when things, you know, were really bad too. So I, I finally sought treatment in 2012. I self-referred myself to a military um, rehabilitation clinic. And that's when I was kind of really first introduced to AA and first introduced to recovery and, and the whole lifestyle. And, you know, I'd like to say it was the perfect wake-up call at that time. Uh, but I was just so broken and so desperate and so just consumed by alcohol um, it just wrecked so many things in my life that it was just like a savior. But then, you know, when I got out of rehab, like 30 days later, I, I relapsed. And then I relapsed for another six months. I went straight back to what I was doing for six months. And then it wasn't until June 17th of 2013 that I finally, you know, got my first sober day because I woke up in a parking lot. And a lot of people will say, well, what is working waking up in a parking lot? I woke up in all sorts of places. But I was a home drinker. I drank at home and no one knew it. I didn't go out and drink. So for me to wake up in a parking lot meant I somehow got out of the house. And that was my wife's biggest fear always of me getting out of the house because um, she was always trying to protect me. She didn't agree with my drinking. She was not an enabler in any way. She was fighting for me and I wasn't fighting for myself. And so when I woke up in that parking lot, I realized, man, I got a really big problem here. I need to do something, really take this stuff seriously. So I went back to my counselor in the Navy rehabilitation and and he's a he was in recovery, he's a retired senior chief. He was a counselor, been in recovery for like 25 years. Awesome man. And um, he helped me get back on path. And then, so I was able to stay sober for about three or four years. 
But the problem was at that time, I wasn't doing AA. I believed in AA. I knew AA was the answer. I knew I had to do it, but I was bigger than that. I, you know, I was better than that. I didn't need to do it. I could just quit. Right. And, you know, we all know that when you have a plan like that, when we rely on our own self, then we all go back to the same thing. And so um, I ended up relapsing again. So I, I didn't drink from about 2013 to 2018. And then in 2018 and 2019, I had a couple of relapses and, and both of them ended with me trying to kill myself. Um, and one of them got my wife arrested. And it was, we lived in the 14th story of an apartment complex in Pentagon City, right outside the Pentagon, like a mile from the Pentagon. And uh, I had apparently taken a bunch of pills and uh, got drunk, relapsed, and was trying to jump off the 14th floor. And she literally saved my life. I was in a blackout. I don't remember it, but I had, you know, bruises from where I fell and where I hit my head, where I was trying to get out. And when the police came, they saw the bruise on my head. Well, what I'd done is I'd fallen and hit the, the metal rail where I was trying to jump off the thing. And my wife, because my wife was pulling me to not jump. And so they thought she hit me, which my wife has never hit me. And uh, they actually took her into custody and left me at the house. So she, oh my gosh, that was kind of a deal breaker for her. She was so mad at me and so disappointed. And uh, so then I realized, okay. I really need to do something. And, and it was then that I finally got sober. So I, you know, now I'm back, you know, to a couple of years under my belt. And I know that I'll never go back because AA has really saved my life. And, and, you know, for me, I'm a Christian. So my higher power is Jesus Christ. And I'm a blogger. And I, you know, I talk about Jesus every day because since 2018, he's changed mine and my wife's life. And, you know, I see him changing lives of people around me. And I understand that not everybody believes in Jesus and they don't have to, you know, to stay sober. We just need to believe in a higher power. So that's kind of my, my background, my story. I can definitely relate to what you just shared. I was talking with my parents the other day and they were reminding me about a time when I was a kid and we had gone to my aunt's house for Thanksgiving and I was sneaking around and I was taking all the glasses off the table that had a little bit of wine left in the bottom of the, of the cups. And I was, sneaking little sips here and there and I remember that I really liked the way that it made me feel so yeah I, I definitely related to what you shared would you mind telling us a little bit more about what your life is like today and maybe tell us about the projects that you're working on sure so uh, I'm a big proponent of service work that's one of the things that when I first really came back you know because a lot of us go in and out of the rooms over years um, and so for me, you know, I first came in in 2012 and then put five years together from 13 to 18, but really didn't have true sobriety until, you know, 2018, the end of 2018. And um, I found that service work for me was a thing like I started making coffee and I start, and then somebody asked me one time because they didn't have a, a chair to me, my higher power, God, you know, made that opening available and said, okay, what are you going to do with this? And so I immediately jumped on it and, you know, I surrounded myself with really quality people. Now the things that I'm working on is, so I'm an author. Um, I work for the federal government. So I'm a retiree from the military. My passion and the gift that God gave me is writing and telling stories. And in and, and my story, um, you've heard a part of it, but 
my my military story has so many more amazing twists and turns in it. But so I'm writing a book right now called How I Got to Here. And really, it's just a book about me realizing a little while back that I didn't understand how I got to the place in my life exactly where I was at at that moment. And that was a couple of months ago. I was like, how did I get to here? Like this spot right here. How did I end up here? Because there are so many things I could have done here or there. What I really wanted to do was for people who are Christians, I wanted to show them all the places in my life where God intervened, even when I when I was trying to do something different. And for non-believers, I thought maybe, you know, it could help them to understand that, you know, God is real and Jesus is real. But again, that's my higher power. And I don't, you know, I understand that many people don't believe and that's okay because as a Christian, I accept all people, no matter who they are or what they believe. It's not my job to judge them. And so I kind of have this attitude in AA too, where, um, you know, we meet the newcomer. The newcomer is like, I mean, it's like when you, when you, I don't know if you have kids, but like when you have kids and they're, they're young and they're, they have this beautiful smell on their head. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of like that. Like when I go to a meeting and there's somebody that just got there that day and you're like, man, just look at them. They're just so messed up and they're just so grateful to be somewhere where they're not drinking. And, you know, when I go to these meetings, I, I, I'm really able to empathize with these people and, and understand what, you know, what they've been through because I've been through the same thing with them. You know what I mean? For me, again, it's just, you know, I wrote this, I'm writing this book. It's coming out December 10th and um, it, it's helping me to to see the places where God helped me in my life, where my higher power helped me. And it comes to, you know, down to alcohol too. So, and I also have another book coming out March 30th. And that book is about crushing Goliath because even though in my lifetime I've overcome, you know, I don't want to say I've overcome alcoholism because we're an alcoholic for life, but I've got it under control, right? I, I have it manageable with AA and sponsors in, pro, in the program. I was a bulimic when I was a young kid from the time I was like 19 to 21 because I was grossly overweight and the only thing I could figure out was to just throw up. And so I was bulimic for two, three years, and that was hard to stop that. And I was a cocaine addict for years. But like I think I told you when we first talked, it's easy to quit cocaine because it's illegal and it's expensive and it's hard to find. Food was the one demon, the one Goliath that I've never been able to overcome. And so that's the one that I've been battling most recently because um, when I got out of the military, I gained I got gained a bunch of weight. So I went from like a normal 260 because I'm six foot. I was always a little bit bigger, but within military standards. And then when I retired, I over a few years, I got up to 359 pounds. And again, I, thought, I felt like I did when I was um, at the end of my drinking days. I just felt horrible. And I was like, man, there's got to be a better way. And so I just decided to turn my faith in Jesus Christ, my higher power, um, into to action. And so what I did was I just started doing Weight Watchers and I'm building the most amazing gym in my garage right now. I just had the floor redone. I got two different Nordic Trek things out there. I'm getting a CrossFit um, rack put in there and weights and everything. And so I'm going to blog and vlog my daily routine to show people like, hey, look at this guy. Look what he's doing. Like He's a recovering alcoholic, drug addict, you know, bulimic, depressed, whatever. And here he is in his garage, you know, changing his life again, right, at 54 years old. And so um, I'm all about hope and messages of hope. And so my blog, crushgoliath.com, 
and you know my social media that I haven't used a lot, but I I put positive messages out there. It's all about letting other people see that no matter where you are in your life, you can get better. And if you're an alcoholic, there are people waiting in AA meetings for you to come. They can't wait for you to get there, and they're going to do everything they can to help you. Um, it's definitely about the meetings. You know, meeting makers make it. They say, right? And there's a lot of cute little. Um, you know, anecdotes in AA and NA, but they're true. They come from a real place. And so I just think that for me, I know it's the only way I can stay sober. I relied on myself for, you know, a, a good 50 something years out of 54 and it didn't work for me. So, you know, I just took these simple suggestions that these brilliant people came up with not so long ago, you know, Bill and them. It's just amazing when you look at what they created and, and how many people they've they've helped in over the years. And so I'm just I'm all about the program because that's that's where it starts and ends with me. I can only speak from my personal experience, but for me, meetings have been a very vital part of my recovery. It's helped me identify what it is that I'm suffering from. It's helped me get connected with other people that are also in the same kind of situation and have had those same kind of thoughts and feelings and emotions and you know and it wasn't until I got in the rooms and started to apply some of the things that I was learning and got a sponsor and did some step work and those kind of things that I finally saw some results in my life because for the longest time I was trying to do it my own way I was trying to pick and choose what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do and I thought I could do it on my own and you know, I tried substituting one for another. I tried all these different things, only using on certain days, and none of that worked. But once I found the rooms and I found the fellowship and that community of people that was suffering in the same way I was, and got to that point where I was willing to ask for help, then that's when the help became available to me. So I can't put it into words how grateful I am for meetings and, and to have those spaces where we can all come together and, and share with each other. Exactly. I mean, what better place? I, I've always said, you know, the thing I loved about an AA meeting is, or, or an NA meeting, either, you know, either kind of meeting is, it's the only place in the world I know that I could walk in and tell the most harrowing tale of drunken escapades. And somebody would look at me and say, oh, I call that Monday morning. You know, maybe nothing to them, you know. Like I can tell people that I woke up in a barnyard, you know, and they'd be like, "Oh, that's it." Well, you know, I actually, you know, did something. You know, somebody's got more. There's always somebody who's got more, mm -hmm. and and that's what I like is everybody's got a story. So immediately it takes us out of our head that I'm the only one, right? Because I think we we feel that way. We suffer in silence a lot uh, before we get into AA, before we go to meetings, and we're like. I thought for sure I was the only person that would buy four handles of vodka and then attempt to put it into, you know, 30 or 40 bottles so I could hide them all around my house. I thought I was the only person that did that. And, you know, since telling my story, people are like, oh, my gosh, I was doing that from this time. And women telling me, you know, they were hiding wine bottles in their house from their husbands and their kids and just, I mean, all sorts of stories. So. That's the beauty of AA. There's there's somebody that's always got a story that's more than yours. And so you immediately realize you're not alone. It's not just you. We're all in it together. And so it takes the self, and you know, because 
typically most alcoholics are extremely narcissistic. And we think, well, we're the best. We're the only. We're, no, there's 10 million just like you over there. And that's what I love about AA is it just allows you to be on a, a level playing field and talk about your craziness, right? I just find so much joy in that because I have some crazy things that have happened to me. And I have shared it in a meeting and I've shared it with friends of mine and they're like, are you, what are you talking about? That is horrible. And in AAP, they just embrace it and laugh about it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you the funny thing. When I first checked myself into rehab in 2012, I had a best friend. His name was Ray at the time. And it's when I lived in uh, Southern Virginia. And Ray and I um, met because my ship got home ported in Norfolk. And so my wife and I bought a house and he lived across the street. Just to me, it just made sense to, to meet people. And he and I hit it off. He had an entrepreneurial spirit. I've always had a high side hustle in the military, you know, always making extra money and stuff like that. So he and I hung out two to three days a week, right? And on the weekend, usually one day, you know, and our wives were good friends. And so it was like the perfect friendship. And so Ray and I just hung out for like from 2000, like the two years leading up to that. And, you know, we'd hang out all the time. And when I checked myself into rehab, I called him. And I said, hey, I need to talk to you. He's like, what's going on? Where are you at? I was like, I'm at Portsmouth Naval Hospital in the in the SARP clinic, the alcohol rehabilitation clinic. And he goes, what are you doing there? I was like, I self-referred myself for alcoholism. He goes, alcoholism? What are you talking about? I've never even seen you drink. And there you have it. That said that this guy functioned with me 30 or 40 hours a week. And I was drinking a liter to a liter and a half of vodka, 100 proof at the end, every day. And he didn't know I drank. That's that's living with your lies and secrets, right? He He was just blown away. He could not believe that I drank because he'd never seen me drink. So he'd be at my house and we'd watch a TV and I'd just go in the kitchen or something, you know, and I'd just, you know, have one of my water bottles, like eight, 10, 12 ounces. I'd just chug it real quick. And just to keep it going. At the end of the episode, I like to give the guest an opportunity to share whatever it is that they would like to. So the floor is yours. Yeah, I would just love to to share that. Um, first of all, if if you're listening to this podcast right now, first thank you. I mean, what a wonderful podcast. I mean, when I was uh, coming up, we didn't have the luxury of these awesome podcasts to hear all this great knowledge. Um, as easily as, as we do now. And so I'm grateful for this information age because, you know, during the pandemic, you know, I was hitting Zoom meetings, you know, every day, two a day. How easy to hit two meetings a day for 14 to or seven days in a row, you know, mm -hmm. hit 14 mm -hmm. meetings. But if you're sitting there suffering and if, you know, if you have an alcohol problem or a drug problem or you're not sure or you have questions, just go on the internet and Google, you know, AA meetings for your location and there'll be a place and there's people there waiting. They have open arms. You're not alone. You know, don't suffer in silence and don't suffer with your secrets, you know, work the program, you know, go find people like you. If you think you're different because, you know, you're hiding, like maybe I did my story or, you know, your story can be completely different. And, you know, you may not know if you're an alcoholic or not, but I can assure you, if you find yourself in a meeting, you'll you'll definitely get the help you need or you'll get the answers to the questions that you have because not everybody's an alcoholic. Some people think they are, but they're not. So, you know, make sure you have a higher power. 
You know, that's the beauty of AA and NA is you don't have to believe in God. And that's what makes it work. I am a devout Christian. I love Jesus Christ. Many people do not. And I know a lot of agnostics and a lot of people who don't believe in God at all. You know, there's no, you have to do this or wear this shirt or say that thing. So just like in the, in the Christian faith, you know, we have all these religions. I abhor, A-B-H-O-R, abhor religion. Because to me, religion is not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about love and kindness and, and helping your fellow man. It's not about what some other people, humans said, like Catholic or Protestant. You know, for me, that's, I don't believe in that, but, but I, I love them all equally. So if you think you got a problem, get help, you know, seek somebody out, just ask. I mean, there's people that are just, they're, they're waiting for you at these meetings and, and they'll embrace you with open arms and you'll see that you're not alone. And you don't have to suffer by yourself and you can get out of the rut that you're in. Um, I write about this stuff every day. I've got books out there and I'm writing several books that are coming out, one in December and one in January on Amazon. But go to crushgoliath.com, my website, and just read my messages of hope, you know, and share those with people. And um, if somebody, you know, emails me, I'm going to respond to them because it's my way of, you know, reaching out to people. I want everybody to know that anything is possible. A better life is possible, but the only way to achieve it is you first have to believe that a better life is possible. And if you could take people like me and Brett and other people, we all found ourselves helpless at one point. So if you find yourself or think you may be, go get the help that you need or go seek people, you know, in these meetings. Reach out to Brett or me, you know, through social media. I mean, people are there standing by waiting to help. Absolutely, man. There are definitely always people that are willing and able to help, but we just have to reach out and, and ask for that help. Exactly. First, you have to admit that you have a problem or think you have a problem, mm-hmm. and then you have to do something about that. I'm really humbled just that, you know, have the opportunity to be on your show and just to talk about, you know, my disease and the things that I'm doing to, to fight it. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day and coming on the show and sharing your message of hope and and letting people know that there's a better way to live. Thank you so much for being on today, Dean. Well, thank you for having me on. And thank you for letting me tell my story because by you allowing me to have this outlet, you've given me the same effect as a meeting today. This has been a meeting, right? You and I talked about this when we first talked on the phone. I went to a meeting one time and found out that the meeting had been gone for years and another guy was standing at the door, too, and we looked at each other. And I was like, you looking for a meeting? He's like, yeah. I'm like, well, it looks like it's gone. But you and I together, from what I've heard, are a meeting. So let's get into this book and let's talk about AA. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. And thank you to all your listeners. And, and just God bless. Dean, thank you so much for being on the show today. Be sure to check out his book, Me to We. And keep an eye out for his upcoming book, How I Got to Here. You can find out more information about Dean and his books at crushgoliath.com. All the links for his social media as well as his website and books will be in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media. 
where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.